Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 41, The Road, recorded November 28th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. I'd like to give a continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Hummingbird, and our outro is Sacrifice to the Inhuman Creature. And corrections today... So when you go to church or whatever place of worship that you go to is called, how do you pronounce worship? Because I refuse to accept the pronunciation of worship. It's not acceptable. There's an O in that word. And you can pronounce O in a couple different ways, but it isn't were. I don't, I don't do that. Lock me up for thought crimes in 1984 if you must, but I am too principled to abide by this nonsense. Worship with an O, not worship. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, next, I totally missed a simile back in episode 31, Stegosaur. So we'll cover it now. Quote, this poor animal's wheezing like a human at 10,000 feet altitude, says Malcolm, describing the sick Stegosaur on page 159. Uh, so let me break it down now. I don't know if I've ever been not pressurized at an altitude of 10,000 feet or not, but apparently there are four cities in Colorado which are above that altitude. And cities is a kind of exaggeration because Alma, Colorado has a population of 313 people, Montezuma, a population of 74, and Leadville, a population of 2,868, and Blue River, a population of 921. These aren't popular places to live. I have read and can report, quote, at altitude, the reduced oxygen content of the blood induces breathing instability with periods of deep and rapid breathing, alternating with central apnea. Uh, this breathing pattern is called high-altitude periodic breathing, or PB, and it occurs even in healthy persons at altitudes above 6,000 feet, according to the National Library of Medicine. Now, Malcolm is suggesting that this late Jurassic animal has been cloned into the modern day and that it is unfit to breathe our atmosphere because it's from an age too long ago. And that's folly. This animal is obviously sick from poisoning, hence it's wheezing. This is a ridiculous statement from Malcolm, and it won't be his last. And that said, there is woefully little resistance to most of his ramblings in this novel, except from Hammond, and we're decidedly not on Hammond's side, so we go by Malcolm's opinions instead. And finally, I mispronounced another episode, again, Apple Plus's prehistoric planet, as Dinosaur Planet. It's prehistoric planet available on Apple Plus. I'll get that all right in one sentence one of these days. <sighs> Hopefully. Dinosaur news. In in this chapter, Muldoon is able to unpack much of what happened during the Tyrannosaur attack, thanks to footprints and tracks in the mud to Gennaro's disbelief. So, for Dinosaur news, I've dug up a few articles on footprints and trackways. From April 2022, the journal Plus One published a theropod trackway providing evidence of a pathological foot from the exceptional locality of Las Hoyas revealed an interesting snapshot of a moment in time captured from the Bremian age of the early Cretaceous about 128 million years ago. The authors employed a multidisciplinary approach, including ichnological and taphonomical descriptions, characterization of the rock lithophases using thin sections, 3D structured light digitalization, and geometric morphometric comparison with a large sample of bipedal dinosaur trackways. And they had to make sense of vertebrate fish trails in the sediment too, Quote, sedimentary analyses showed that the trackway was produced in a humid benthonic microbial mat. 
the consistency and plasticity of which enable the preservation of the details of the movement of the animal, says the paper. Geometric analysis indicates that, quote, wide steps weren't unusual compared to other trackways, and their size and shape indicate they were left by an animal with a hip height of approximately two meters high. Their research leads them to conclude that this was a large theropod dinosaur with a pathological foot, generating the trackway as it crossed an area of shallow water while slowly walking towards the main water source, thus stepping steadily over the benthonic mat over which multiple fish were swimming. The unmistakably large theropod trackway featuring two unusual aspects of a wide step and equally deformed left footprints, which had a dislocated digit, were uncovered at the Las Hoyas locality in Serenia de Quemqua, Spain. The authors conclude that this is one of the, quote, best trackways of a theropod dinosaur, which combines a foot pathology and a fairly regular gait. And they were surprised that, quote, analogous deformities occur in modern birds, despite the astonishing differences in size. I looked into what Bremian age theropods you might find in Spain or Portugal that could potentially have been a five-ton carnivore and came up with a few choices. There were three spinosaurs, the Iberospinus, Camarillosaurus, or Vallibonavenatrix, but the only animal from the right... Calizas de la Herguina formation, which I think these trackways were found in, is the very strange concavenator, which was a carcharodontosaurid with an unusually tall spines above its hips. In any case, this injured left foot toe two is backwardly directed, and right foot appears to be taking a greater load of the animal's weight. So that's lots of interesting things to learn from footprints in that paper. The second article today is a column from Glen Rose, Texas, called Footprints, Drought uncovers 113 million-year-old dinosaur tracks in Texas. Dinosaur track researcher Glenn Cuban gained the, quote, rare opportunity to observe some dinosaur tracks that were exposed due to a drought. They'd usually be under mud and water located in Dinosaur Valley State Park, southwest of Dallas. The severe drought last summer revealed, quote, at least 45 never-before-seen tracks to the surface, or rather the surface was removed to reveal 45 never-before-seen tracks because of a drought. At 113 million years of age, that's a at a junction between the Aptian and Albion ages of the early Cretaceous, when this was believed to be a muddy area beside a shallow sea that once covered central Texas. This once coastal area was covered in beaches, lagoons, coral reefs, and large tropical palm and conifer trees. The tree-toed theropod tracks were first discovered in 1909, and through excavations in the 1930s, more sauropod tracks were discovered, as well as more theropod tracks. The article says that it was these sauropod tracks that conclusively dismissed the aquatic brontosaur theory, where brontosaurus were considered to be too big and heavy to walk on land, and so they stayed in the water, and their long necks allowed them to live in the deep seas. While the newly discovered tracks are said to belong to Acrocanthosaurus, leaving behind what is been named the Lone Ranger Trackway, which spans about 100 feet and includes 140 footprints. An Acrocanthosaurus was a kind of theropod, a three-toed dinosaur that stood about 15 feet tall, weighed up to seven tons. The sauropod tracks are believed to belong to a Sauroposeidon, which is apparently the official state dinosaur of Texas. These sauropod tracks are apparently special because the image of the claws on their feet are well-preserved, which is uncommon. There are some strange slashes and markings in the fossil trackway, too, which could be indications of where a dinosaur was floating in the water, it reached down to eat, or a foot slide in the mud, and perhaps an indication of dinosaurs preying upon each other as well. From the markings, Glenn Cuban is credited in this article as saying these conclusively indicate sauropods traveled in herds and measure how fast the animals were moving. Quote, by researching bones, paleontologists concluded dinosaurs could only run 10 or 15 miles per hour. Cuban noted paleontologist Robert Bacher was ridiculed for hypothesizing some species could run up to twice that, says the article. Quote, we found direct evidence in a running trail in the park that 
they could run 30 miles per hour in soft mud. So imagine what it might have been able to do on firm ground, he said. Quote, everyone thought Bakker was crazy, but I think he was exactly right. Which of the dinosaurs was running that fast? It's not clearly specified, but it was likely the Acrocanthosaurus, right? The sauropod would be galloping at that speed, and I don't think I've heard of evidence of galloping dinosaur tracks yet. All right, with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Today, I'd like to welcome my guest, Zoe Hanley, who is more commonly known online as Ed Zukin, a Gatabo gaming hobbyist. She's been playing video games all her life and is a lover of both new and retro games. She enjoys digging in the dirt and picking out the games that are perfectly fine if you just clean them up a bit. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Uh, Zoe and I met as part of a World of Warcraft adventuring party on a quest to procure devout shoulders for one of our members' paladin class characters. And the plan was simple. A few party members were to use Intimidating Shout, and all the mages were to use Divine Intervention to keep the swarm of bad guys from overwhelming the raiding party while we collected all the eggs. And it was a good plan, but the odds were calculated at... 32.33 repeating, of course, percent of survival. Uh, But before we could finalize our mission, do you remember what happened? Uh, We would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. It was (laughs) party member Leroy Jenkins. Stormed in on his own, sending us into a panicked rush to save his life and ultimately leading to our entire raiding party's defeat uh, because of those rotten kids. That's right. Did you? Uh, I haven't played much World of Warcraft since then. How about yourself? Uh, I've actually picked up the recent expansion, uh, Dragonflight, and uh, it's probably the first time in a long time I've actually played the game to any extent. Mm-hmm. How is it? I'd say it's pretty good. I like the new class. I like the new area, and uh, that's uh, about all I had interest in. So. <laughs> I played uh, World of Warcraft 2 back when that was around, and I had a lot of fun with that. I remember some of the cheat codes still were... Um, if you enter, entered in Make It So, which I guess is a Star Trek uh, reference, you became, like, invincible, I think? Maybe not. And then the other code, I don't remember what it did, but it was 8675309. So uh, one of the Tommy Two Zone songs. Those are the cheat codes I remember. There was a bunch of them. We used them all the time because we didn't play very fairly. Oh, so it was Warcraft 2 that you played? That's the one, yeah. We had... Um, I mean, we didn't have online forums and stuff like that back when I tried it. So you ha- kind of had to know somebody who had the game and then, like, ag- arrange a meetup <laughs> and then phone their <laughs> modem uh, with dial-up. Right, land parties. Yeah. Land. <laughs> I wish it was a land party. <laughs> it was right <laughs> over the dial-up modem. And it worked out okay. I mean, we cheated a lot. Oh, okay. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I was around back in the dial-up days. I used to play Battlefield 1942 a lot. Which one was that about? I don't remember that one. Yeah, it was World War Two. It was a... Uh, it was an early online World War II shooter, um, a bit after the first and second Medal of Honor, first in Battlefield series. Okay. Was it was it... it was a little it was a little cartoonish, but at the time, like there was only cartoonish war games. That's okay. How re- well? I mean, they're really real now, but <laughs> sometimes war is better off a little a little unrealistic. Yes. Well, <laughs> sometimes it can be both ways. Yeah, for sure. Well, now it seems like. I mean, I've just seen some of the, the clips and videos and stuff like that, but like um, the Call of Duty and all of that seems just like, it's like literally ground warfare. It's incredible stuff. Yeah, I prefer like uh, the Wolfenstein games. Oh, yeah. Where you just, you know, it's just about murdering Nazis. Good, wholesome fun. Just marching through, that's right. So welcome to the hey. show. Um, let's get started with the easiest question for me to ask, but the most difficult for people to answer. Uh, what is your favorite dinosaur? My favorite dinosaur, uh, 
I can't pronounce it, Paracephalophilus? That's a good one, yeah, the Paracephalophilus. I used to call it That's the... That's right, I still don't know how to pronounce it. You put it, spit it out pretty quickly. <laughs> People pronounce it all kinds of different... Parasaurolophus was one that came through, but Parasaurolophus okay. comes all different ways. It's hard to catch on if, uh, if it's not part of your uh, linguistic <laughs> enunciation. Yeah, I don't speak Latin. <laughs> Is that... Is that what it's all based in? Parasaurolophus would be near the crested lizard. It's named after the Saurolophus, and so it means it's near the Saurolophus, and Saurolophus was uh, the lizard crest. But yeah, that's, that's what it means. It's, I think, Greek. I don't know if it's all Latin or not. I think it's all Greek. But yeah, they, okay. the naming conventions are obviously based on antiquated languages that we don't use any longer, uh, or they were for and a long time. it's clear to scientists. That's right. That's how you keep the layman's from mucking about in your science. Exactly. <laughs> you use words they can't pronounce. But yeah, uh, I, 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 whenever I play the Jurassic Park Evolution games, mm-hmm. which were the recent park builder games, uh, those were always the ones I try to get first. The personal. I remember that I've played that as well. They are the ones. They're they're tricky. There's a couple of them where you have to breed them and a bunch of them all at once, or else they get cranky and they cause a lot of disruption. And I think the yeah, exactly. are, yeah, but it's still easier than having carnivores running around. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Every time there's a lightning storm, you have to tear down all the the fences and get everybody in their shelters. Yeah. Right on. So I've dinosaur. You played. You played uh, Evolution Builder. You played uh, a couple Jurassic games. Are, are dinosaurs like important in your life at all? They don't have to be, but I'm just curious. Um, I mean, I I haven't seen one recently, so they don't have <laughs> a, a drastic impact on my life. Um, I I like dinosaurs. Who doesn't like dinosaurs? Yeah, good answer. <laughs> and let's find those people who don't like them, and label those people. So, um, how about Jurassic Park? What came first for you? Was it the, the novel or the movie or maybe one of the sequels? Which uh, how did you enter into the the land of Jurassic Park to begin with? It it would have been the movie. I I would have been uh, too young to have actually watched the movie, but I watched the movie anyways. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was until I was a teen that I actually read the book. So somewhere in the early aughts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I fell madly in love with the novel. Cool. And uh, for a while, I, I just had a renewed interest in Jurassic Park and was consuming all sorts of media and playing all the games and that sort of thing. And they certainly made uh, plenty of media available for us, didn't they? <laughs> After yes, the- they certainly we did, yeah. It feels like right around the uh, after Jurassic Park 3, the things really dried up. And there was an awful dry spell, but people were so... E- I mean, how do I put this? It's funny how people were disappointed with Jurassic Park 3, but then were desperate for the fourth one. <laughs> it's like, they didn't love the last one, but they just... They were surely going to love the next one. And it took you know more than a decade for that to, to realize something. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think Jurassic Park 3 was such a blow to me that I... I... <laughs> <laughs> like i i still love the park building aspect so i always seeked out those games mm-hmm. and i also played jurassic park trespasser in that big dry spell that you're mentioning but i never even really thought that they should have made another movie and i still to this day haven't seen jurassic world or it's sequels and it's not because i've been deliberately avoiding them it's just that i haven't really had the, the desire to watch them mm-hmm that's fair. Although, if you said you weren't watching them on principle, that'd be cool too. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's just like um, it's just like the new Star Wars movies. Like yeah. my my Star Wars phase was so long ago that I I don't. 
I, I, could... I don't watch movies a lot mm-hmm. these days in the first place, and usually when I do, it's on some old classic. I can relate in the way I, we watched the the Mentalist. We thought that that show with Simon Baker and uh, Robin Tenney was was fun, and we loved that he was a uh, this. Uh, mentalist that was able to you know divine who the criminal is and trick them into revealing their plots and that show came and went and maybe it lasted a little too long and then it was gone it it wrapped and then the new show came out and it was very similar it was about a guy that wasn't a mentalist this time he was a sleight of hand magician and he would kind of do this basically the same thing and yeah i did love the mentalist we loved watching it but i you know I was done with it. <laughs> I didn't need to watch an, another yeah. installment with new characters doing the same thing. And yeah, so I can I, appreciate I, that. Yeah. Yeah, I lived it. I can move on. Mm-hmm. And it was satisfying in every way. There was no need to re-enter into that world. And uh, maybe Jurassic Park 3 does not leave people with that feeling, but certainly Jurassic Park did. Nonetheless, yeah. I can appreciate people who don't see the, the, the Jurassic World franchise as the same because it is certainly different. It's probably for a different generation. So you oh, said you, you, found, you found the book, you loved the novel. What are, are some of the memorable, memorable moments for you in the novel that, that uh, I mean, you don't need to be, uh, have an eidetic memory or anything like that, but certainly parts will stick out. What, uh, what, what do you recall liking the best about the novel? I mean, I like that it was different than the movie. Yeah. It was so long ago that I, I only have like vague memories of certain parts of it. Mm-hmm. But I loved the amount of detail it went into on the on the science behind it and how it fleshed out things that kind of got glossed out over in the movie. Uh, and then I I I, I don't know. I, it, it surprised me on some of the characters' fates. Like John Hammond dies mm-hmm. and Jeff Goldblum dies, but he comes back in the next novel. Yeah. And it was just it was a much rounder experience. Like I still really like the movie. I think it's a a, a great film. But the the book just felt a lot fattier. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more to sink your teeth into. That's a it's a really memorable takeaway. Is when you when people read the book, they go, "Wow, there's a lot more in there," and uh, and and for the better. Like there's a tremendous amount of detail and quality that goes into building up the universe in which this this dramatically unusual thing is possible. So for sure, yeah, that's a big part. Of the, a big takeaway is that uh, it's worth the read, even if you. You just enjoyed the, the the movie or whatever, or you think the new franchises are kind of hokey. The first book still is a wonderful adventure to to enjoy. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good companion. If you liked the movie and you want more of that, it is probably the best thing to go to after the movie to get more of that, rather than than the sequels <laughs> or the games or any other piece of media. Going into the book book is the best way to get the larger experience mm-hmm. and we were, i was talking with one guest and it's astonishing that um because of that that and because star wars has done this and x files did this and star trek has done this to have a line of novels or to explore the universe in a in a in a novel form or in a written word or in books as opposed to into the, the the movies, and for whatever reason, the appetite hasn't been there to make uh, more novels that explore the universe in a greater detail. When its tradition begins and its foundations begin in in this novel form, and it, I I do find that interesting because you're right. If you love the movie, the book is only going to be better. I can't imagine you would say, ah, this is like I don't know how you could <laughs> interpret the novel worse than than the films. Um, it's so rewarding in many ways. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that, yeah. So you mentioned Malcolm and you mentioned Hammond uh, being 
important characters in the novel, memorably. Uh, what are some of your favorite characters that come out of the, the film or the or the novel? Uh, I think uh, I think Jeff Goldblum's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I it, it was it was always Alan Grant who was the coolest. That's right. But when I got older, I actually liked uh, Gennaro, the hunter, uh, and um, uh, Mr. Arnold, the hacker. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, when you, when you watch it the first time, they're just sort of like supporting characters. But, you know, especially after reading the book, you realize that there's a lot more to them than just what's on screen. Yeah. So they they stood out to me as really interesting characters. Mm-hmm. I think when you read the novel after the film to discover that Gennaro had so much more of a role to play, that he was so, so much more uh, responsible for everything that's going on. Like as the lawyer, he comes in and he's directing what the consultants are there to do. He's the one theoretically in charge of leading the tour and then they are guided by the people around the park but he really and then i think there's quite a bit i mean if you don't recall in the novel that's entirely fine but he he does take some agency in terms of like trying to restore order to the park and helping chiefly with muldoon the uh the, the park warden but he does try to own up to this try and make a decision that's right for 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 everyone involved uh he feels some responsibility i think and i think the novel portrays that well if the film didn't, <laughs> I don't think the film did. He, he becomes a patsy of of some yeah, magnitude. Yeah, I, I think that the film tried to be a lot softer on the dangers of like you know capitalized science. Mm-hmm. So they they tried to make John Hammond look like a good guy in the film, whereas in the in the book he was a lot more ruthless. Mm-hmm. And then, so the, the lawyer became a problem because everybody was just getting in, in front of John Hammond's dream rather than trying to, to rein him in. And it was really like everybody else's fault rather than John Hammond's. Yeah. <laughs> Hammond, certainly, yeah, he defers all responsibilities. At the end, he's blaming everyone but himself. And yeah, he was something. <laughs> and, and, and then he got eaten by the smallest dinosaurs. Yeah, there's something the about that, eh? Yeah. It's something about that. So, um... I'll ask an unusual question next uh, for the purposes of segue, but we've got Muldoon, we've got Malcolm, um, and certainly Jeff Goldblum. Of all of the characters, which of them has, would you say, maybe your favorite name? Uh, Favorite name? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Probably Muldoon, because he sounds like he's a bad guy, but he's, I mean, I guess he's a big game hunter, and that's kind of Mm -hmm. a moral gray area, but uh, I, I don't know. Muldoon's just such a hunter name he does sound ruthless doesn't he uh-huh. yeah for sure well i ask a, a strange question like that uh, in a contrived sort of way because i want to ask you about um fun online handles that people use and specifically if there is a fun story behind your name the adzukin uh <laughs> name that you go by online where did you come up with that it is actually a very obscure reference to a game called Space Ranger 2, which in itself is something of an obscure game. Okay. But in the opening cutscene, it depicts this bounty hunter chasing this alien through space. And he only refers to the alien once, and it's he's like, I'm coming for you, Adzugan. And I just, 
it became this phrase that my roommates and I at the time used just when we're in like a game and we're like trying to get revenge on somebody. <laughs> okay. And I just kind of adopted it from there and made it my own. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, I love little stories like that. Because I looked it up and I was like, what is this possibly referencing? And there was no sign uh, in my searching, but I can't find anything on the internet if I try. But anyway, that's no, cool that story. was sort of the point of it. I'm, I'm <laughs> like, I want something that nobody else will get or take. Yes. And, and that's what I arrived on. Mm-hmm. Well, in 20 years from now, it would be Edzukin 814 uh, because there's 813 before. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say about uh, your favorite gaming system to start. When, uh, when you started... Uh, entering into the, the sphere of of, uh, of gaming, what, what, what system did you begin on? I technically began on the NES, the, okay. the Nintendo Entertainment System, the first home console by Nintendo. Uh, but I was very young at the time, uh, and then my family swapped it out for a Super Nintendo, and um, that's sort of that's sort of where I, I really started diving deep into games Mm -hmm. uh really the n64 though is is my favorite console as much as it is a very flawed and warty console uh it is one that i i have the most kinship with okay yeah the uh in college uh the place we lived at had an n64 and they a lot of good multiplayer games on that one (laughs) Oh yeah, there's Goldeneye is pretty much the one that most people think back to in terms of multiplayer. Uh, mm-hmm. Mario Kart 64 was another big one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it was it was one of the first consoles that had four players as a built-in feature rather than needing a, an external peripheral. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they made good use of it. Like every developer was thinking, like, how do I get four players into my game? And I, so it. A lot of good experiences. Battle Tanks was another good one. That was <laughs> one of my favorites. We had Smash um, Brothers. There was a lot of Smash Brothers getting played. Yeah, I played a ton of Smash Brothers when I was a kid. Great yeah, console was, for multiplayer. I was never any good at it. I always played as Yoshi. I don't know if he was a good character or not. I but uh, I never I never won any rounds with Yoshi. But well, uh, you're the only person I know who plays as Yoshi. I'm sure you're not the only person out there, but. <laughs> I used to play as uh, a Fox McCloud in, in the first one. Okay. Right on. So, yeah, we grew up, uh, we had the uh, Sega Master Sega Master System, and then we oh. uh, graduated into the Super Nintendo after that, and uh, remember playing Super Mario World for ages. I loved that. And you could ride, you know, a dinosaur. I love that there were different types of yeah. dinosaurs. If you ate, like, a, they got the blue Yoshi or the yellow Yoshi, you could do different things. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, my brother and I eventually discovered that there were some levels had like alternate exits to each level. And so you were, uh, I guess, indicating by color, you could figure out how many you needed to find. And uh, I think you could get 101% if you completed everything in that game. But we, yeah, we but played... that required going through the, the special world. Yeah. You, you go to uh, Star, Star Road, which was like a shortcut system for the game. And then if you got the secret exit there, you go to Special World, and there was a bunch of, like, extremely difficult levels that you had to get. And if you got through that, I believe your prize was, like, you went to a version of the game, but, like, the Goombas, or the Galoombas, (laughs) as they are actually called, were pumpkins or something? Yes. I don't remember the exact detail. I remember, I just looked it up recently. It goes into like an autumn template or something. The skins of everything change season for whatever reason. I don't know if you could turn it back or not, but that was a sign that you finished Star World to to all that were watching, which was just you. Yeah, if you you beat the 
the the special world you 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 won the game you you you, you toppled it mm-hmm well i remember we so with our super nintendo i had to go back and think we played a lot of extra innings baseball legend of zelda link to the past we did a lot of donkey kong country which is similar yeah. to mario world in a lot of ways uh lion king we had the game for <laughs> sim city oh, we sorry. played a lot uh nhl City was great yeah nhl 94 mickey mouse castle of illusion uh, i played quite often i could i could do a speed run of that one pretty well uh, probably because it was sega genesis was it? illusion did we i couldn't have had a sega genesis who knows maybe that wasn't the sega master system there there were mickey games on super nintendo there was mickey mania okay uh there was um the great circus mystery or something and then there was uh, uh a magical quest one that went alongside the two Capcom. You know, I, I defer to you. Must be right. It was probably on the Sega Master System. We had the Castle of Illusion. There was, yeah, there was a version of Castle of Illusion for the Sega Master System. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I could do a speed run of that one. Anyhow, two buttons. It was easy. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Do my brother had a bunch of sports games. Um, I remember we had Earthworm Jim, which was like a cool character, great cover art and stuff like that. But it was too hard for me. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing on that. <laughs> Oh, I, I loved Earthworm Jim. Yeah, Earthworm Jim Two was great too. That was a that was a. I still think Earthworm Jim Two is art just because of how weird it is. Yeah, like it is a modern art game. It is bizarre, but it was it like I said, cool to look at, fun to fun to walk around as Earthworm Jim pretending like what a weird hero. It was just bizarre in all different ways. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't figure out what was supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, uh, the other big game that we played a tremendous amount of in uh, Super Nintendo was Jurassic Park. And that's kind of how I discovered where you were. You did some uh, online journaling about uh, your experience playing uh, Jurassic Park for Super Nintendo. When's the last time you played it? It looked like the review was fairly recent. Did you play it recently? Yeah, fairly recently. Uh, a few years ago, but it is that that is rather fresh in my memory. Yeah, that's so awesome. So Jurassic Park by Ocean Software is where this conversation has been sort of leading to. Uh, it was released to the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Looks like it came out for North American audiences in October 1993. Yeah, I actually played it back when I was a kid. Me too. Um, back at that time, though, I was like obsessed in with Doom. Okay. Which is one of the one of the early first person shooters, and the first person. Sp- perspective was what really got me and you you went into all the different facilities in jurassic park and it swapped into a first person shooter kind of gameplay Mm -hmm. and and that was enough to grab me as a kid that's all i needed was that first person perspective because it was it was something you didn't see very often at the time yeah and it was definitely i remember the interior scenes the music was different it was filled with dinosaurs and the dinosaurs weren't especially difficult to overcome but there were a lot of them and it was always spooky going from room to room wondering what you're going to see next well there were only two types of dinosaurs <laughs> in the interiors there was the velociraptor and there was the dilophosaur yeah the velociraptor would charge at you and the dilophosaur would stand in place and and spit at you mm-hmm. um but it was it was kind of creepy because the the music was like this sort of um this this sort of like echo almost like a like a water dropping yeah and uh so there was there was a creepy feel as you went through all these derelict facilities and and there were just you know there's only two types of dinosaurs but you your imagination filled in the blanks there 
And the music, you're absolutely right. It was groovy. I, I, uh, I don't think there's any complaints about that. I had to look into a little bit more. So for everyone listening, as I looked into it, it's composed by John Donne, not the John Donne, the English poet, scholar, and cleric of the Church of England, who gave us the evergreen quote, No Man is an Island, and became historically renowned as a sonnet writing and terse, tense inspiration for future generations. But uh, John Donne, J-O-N-D-U-N-N, was the composer who began his musical career. I've read, I can't vouch for this, but with Imagine Software in 1987, continued with Ocean Software in 1988, and eventually ended his career with Electronic Arts in around 2003. But he, that soundtrack was awesome. I remember, because you played it for hours, and it just got in your head, and it got into your soul, and uh, you could tell where you were on the map by, like, the different sounds. It was really cool. Yeah, it was was no John Williams, but he really brought his own feel to the game. Like, the overworld music, like you said, it changes from place to place, and it was all this weird, like, groovy, bassy music that almost sounded like cyberpunk. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it was definitely in that not quite would, would it be midi files like it was still in that it wasn't in stereo or anything like that but it uh oh, the, the super nintendo did stereo yeah did they okay um, it sounded great but it wasn't yeah it wasn't like listening to a band <laughs> no no well it, it, it's just electronic synth tracks on, on super nintendo well i was down for it i thought it was terrific and oh, it's great and you mentioned yeah so the the uh the gameplay was was it innovative, like special at the time, in terms of like it having the first-person port of view while having the top-down adventure through the, the the rest of the map? Is were there a lot of games doing that sort of thing at the time? It was the newest thing. Like um, Wolfenstein 3D came out in either '91 or '92, which was only briefly before Jurassic Park came out. Now Wolfenstein 3D wasn't the first to use the first-person's perspective. Uh, I believe Ultima Underworld predated it and even then there there are games that use the perspective but didn't use the the technique of having smooth movement within these mm-hmm. first person environments um so it was it, it wasn't the first but it was on the cutting edge to have these kind of things like this was what people were really interested at that point because wolfenstein made a huge impact and then doom was a phenomenon mm-hmm yeah, a fascinating game. I can't. It takes me back to a time where you could put a game on, and you could look up five hours later, close to the end or whatever. And like um, these days, <laughs> uh, you got things to do. You haven't got five straight hours to do anything but sleep most of the time. And uh, yeah, it takes you back to the time where where you could just sit down and game for forever, and it wouldn't matter. It was awesome. I think back on those well, days I mean- fondly. <laughs> I mean, playing video games is my job now, so <laughs> I, I still do play for five hours at a time or or longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that that's kind of a luxury that uh, that I'm I'm privileged to have. Well, that's working. Is it really playing? Yes. Okay. Yes, right. It on. Is. Yes. No. I enjoy it still immensely. There are some times when I'm like pushing to get through a forty-hour game before a deadline. Oh no! And that can turn it into a bit of a frustrating slog. Especially if I don't enjoy the game. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'd rather not be doing anything else. So one of the complaints with the the Jurassic Park game was that there was no save. You couldn't really get up and, and leave it for a little bit. And it was fairly long. And it was challenging in, in a lot of respects. But uh, how did that, I guess, play into your, your experience playing the game again? I never completed it when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. 
um, simply because it was so long. And if you died, you were back at the start of the game. Mm -hmm. I believe. I, I may not be remembering that right. But uh, it with no saves, like back in the day, there were there were no save states. Like if you're playing on an emulator today, you can you can mark save states, these little bookmarks wherever you want in the game. Mm -hmm. But back in the day, like the only way you could, if your parents had to drag you out for the day, or they told you to go outside, the only thing you could really do was turn off the TV and leave the console running. Yeah. So. As a kid, I only ever rented the game and I, I never completed it. And when I went back to it with the intention to complete the game, I basically set aside the rest of my day in order to get through it. And and from what I recall, it's it's at least a three or four hour game. Oh yeah. So let's go over some of the missions. So I looked at, I've got the manual and uh, I can see what are the missions we need to do. So the first thing you had the steps were to turn on the main power, which is consistent with what happens in the novel and, yeah. and also with the with the film. Uh, that was your first step. Then you had to stop the raptors from entering the visitor center. So there must have been some door, I don't recall, you had to lock or something like that. Uh, then you had to find all of the eggs. There is How many eggs are scattered around the island? I don't recall. I don't recall. There's, there's a lot of them. I don't even remember if you needed to get all of them to finish the game. I know I did it though. I, I, uh, I wonder too. I, I think it was a declining balance. So like as you found them, it went down to it whittled down the number. Um, yeah, it it kept count. Like there was definitely a goal there, but I don't remember if you needed it to actually get off the island. Oh, that's a good because question. Because the, the main goal is you you are trying to call for help, and then you have to get to the helipad to get off. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you had to destroy the raptors on the ship. You had to kill all of them. I remember that being the worst because the ship was big. It was a tremendous maze. And yes. and it would always say, oh yeah, there's one more. And you're like, well, where is it? Because I've been all up and down this thing and I can't find it. That was the worst. You're getting lost in those ships uh, trying to find the last damn raptor on there. It was That was like the, the part I loathed the most about that game. Well, the worst part of the ship was that you get so far into it and then it would tell you you need a key <laughs> yeah. that you don't have. And the key was not in the ship. You had to go back to like the visitor center or the raptor pen and scour those areas for a door that was previous lock, previously locked to get the key. By the end of the game, you've gone over like the mountain area so many times that it's, it's redundant. Like mm -hmm. backtracking was one of the game's biggest problems beyond the, the, the lack of ability to save. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And had you been able to save, maybe walking around and exploring the map isn't so bad, but yeah, that was a, yeah. that was a big part is, Oh, I finally got the key card that, Oh, I needed this at the Raptor pen in the North of the Island. And yeah, it was a big hike to get back. <laughs> Yeah, like you, 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 you collected. I think the keys were all coded to different characters in the the movie and game. So like, you had to get Doctor Wu's identification card to unlock mm -hmm. certain doors, and that would lead you into new areas. And you'd have to get keys from there. But the fact that they were entirely scattered around the park, that yeah. you had to keep traipsing back and forth across. Like you said, if you could save, it would be a little bit easier and more manageable. But you couldn't, so you were constantly just going back and forth. Do you remember having a map and like drawing where things are and trying to keep a reference? Like it says in the guide to do that. I remember we had one, I think that we drew like of the boats and things like that just to figure out where the heck we were. But I remember also, I, I don't know if it was a game of like uh, a copy of Nintendo Power or 
some gaming magazine, but we had like a walkthrough that we had in the magazine, and you could like turn the pages and figure out where things were. I don't know how we got our hands on that copy of that issue, but uh, we needed that because it wasn't easy getting around. I don't think Nintendo Power did it, but there were enough magazines at the time that someone probably did a walkthrough of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, 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 these days I like to enhance my experiences with some old games by actually creating old maps. Like you play the original Metroid and there's no map screen there. Mm-hmm. So um, I played it with my husband and we, I, I had him creating the map of the game as we went through it. Okay. It, it's just something that, you know, it was an experience that we only had back in those days before map screens were common in games. But I don't think I did that for Jurassic Park, and that was more because of hubris. <laughs> uh, I didn't think I would need to do it, so I didn't. And I remember regretting it when it came to that ship, and when it came to trying to remember where locked doors were, so I could yes. go back and and explore the areas that I had key cards for. Absolutely. And I think the so the other mission parts again. You were right. You had to radio for help. You have to reach the helipad at the very end. I think you have to go. Do you have to go back to the visitor center to radio for help, and then back to the. You might have to do that. That's incredible. And you had to destroy the I raptor the, nest. I thought the radio was on the ship. But I hope I, it was. I might be remembering that wrong. Like I, I don't have the complete walkthrough in my head. I just remember the different parts of the game. Like I remember being in the raptor's nest. Which I think is where is where you destroy the raptors, the mm-hmm. raptor eggs. Yes. So I think the ship is where you actually radio out. Good, good. That makes better sense. <laughs> it's too well, much. Yeah, the ship would have a radio made. But why would you have to power up the park to get the radio on the ship working? <laughs> it probably made sense. This but won't be. I'm, I'm the, remembering it. Now. This won't be the first plot hole in the Jurassic franchise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I was going through the, from what I could recall in terms of connecting. So the adaptation for the game has a lot of elements that were part of the movie, but a lot of elements that were also part of the novel. And I think, obviously, with it coming out only shortly after the the film came out, I imagine that they had to rely on the novel for a lot of their inspiration in terms of writing the the game and and designing it and things like that. So um, there's quite a bit of it that is more closely related to the novel than necessarily the film, which is pretty neat. And so uh, obviously finding eggs is a big plot point that uh, is a part of the game. That is a part of the game that is also a big part of the novel. Uh, There are hidden weapons caches that we don't use in the the movie, but it shows up in the novel. Uh, Raptors on the ship is not a thing in the movie at all, but of course is a big problem in the novel. Um, The dragonflies. Do you remember the dragonfly in the novel? Yes. Yeah. So for no reason, there is a giant six-foot wingspan dragonfly (laughs) uh, that they, I guess, also cloned that uh, just appears. Thinking about that, like, they got the the dinosaur parts of the DNA from mosquitoes. Can mosquitoes bite a dragonfly? Um, See, so I guess if a dragonfly were in a six-foot piece of amber... Um, I guess they could just clone it. They wouldn't have to clone the blood of it because they would have it. Um, and theoretic- theoretically, they could also clone the mosquitoes too, couldn't they? That would. I, I don't think they should do that. Well, I, they I shouldn't. Think we've have. got enough mosquitoes as is. <laughs> we don't need r- crazy ones. Um, 
it, it seems odd yeah. that there was a dragonfly and there's six foot wings. So I looked into like uh, the the species of dragonflies that people have. Six feet wide is bigger than any known uh, dragonfly. That doesn't that's not a thing that science has given to us yet. Uh, the historical record has not provided a six foot wingspan dragonfly. Uh, and as far as I know, I mean, dragonflies probably existed um, for for over over many many eons. But uh, the largest dragonflies are known from many 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 years before the dinosaurs existed. So it's a strange creature to include in Jurassic Park. But I guess uh, exciting. I mean, they don't do anything in the novel. They just kind of show up. I think one of them lands on their arm. And they go wow, and then it's gone. So it's an odd inclusion. It kind of sticks out in the book. Uh, but it, they get to be great critters in the video game. So maybe Crichton was thinking about that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking maybe about in the video game adaptation, it would be fun to have dragonflies. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think what they actually got a lot of source, or, or, or where they sourced a lot of their ideas from was, was the toy line. Oh, maybe. Like, um, because they're actually, on, on some of the fences, there are actually signs hanging that say Kenner on them. And I remember thinking that the the Alan Grant in the game looks more like his toy than he does, you know, his character in the movie. Interesting. Okay. I wonder. Because the toy companies, as far as I know, which is not firsthand, do get a list of what's in the film before a lot of people do. For the for releasing the toys, in in collaboration with the film's release, so that's very interesting, huh? Well, what an interesting point. <laughs> uh, what else? Yeah, you're right. Alan Grant isn't the character design that you play in the, is uh, is certainly based off of the movie. It's not based off yeah. of the novel. He's got that iconic and the, hat uh, and the hat. the uh, the uh, the handkerchief <laughs> that he has around his neck. So he's ready to work. Uh, what else is there? Finding security cards is something that comes up in the novel a little bit to get access. They need security cards to get into places. The raptor nest is in a man-made subterranean facility, which is in the novel. They kind of like a an aqueduct or something like that that they're living in underneath their... Or a water station? I don't know where they are, but they're underground. And I remember in the, in the game, there's like bricked walls and stuff. So they've commandeered uh, some place for their nest, which is kind of neat. We get interesting weapons as well. What uh, what do you remember firing? <laughs> I, I mostly remember the bolos. Yes. Or the bolus. Bolos? Bolos? They're grenade bolos, yeah. Or the exploding okay, bolos, whatever they are. And uh, it, it just made a cool sound when it shot. Yeah. Um, but there was there was the dark gun. Mm -hmm. I think it was a dark gun. It might have been a rocket launch now that I think about it. I think there was... Um, but by default, you had the taser, mm -hmm. which fired this like long vine of electricity that got weaker over time. But typically, you, you didn't want to fight with that, especially not in the first person areas. Yeah, you could get the compies. I remember we used to chase down the Gallimimus with the with the cattle prod, and we we put yeah, them all to sleep. <laughs> if you were some sort of monster, you could <laughs> chase down the Gallimimus. When you get I frustrated, remember, uh, a kid at school once told me that you could kill the Tyrannosaurus and you can't, <laughs> don't delete that kid. Don't try to kill the T-Rex. That's too funny. I, it was immune to everything except the tranquilizer darts. It, that would slow it down a little bit, but that was it. Yeah, you couldn't kill it, though. Yeah. It was you couldn't kill to... the Triceratops, I don't 
like hiding. That's not that true. you should. And because then, that that's a herbivore. He's not doing it. Yeah, he was he's just they're just stampeding. <laughs> yeah. So those are neat parts. I think uh, I think the tranquilizer gun is the only thing they use on the Tyrannosaur in the novel, which is a neat uh, way to way that they've adapted that. I don't know about exploding bolos. I think they might have invented that for the game. I can't imagine that you would use these these uh, weights at the end of a string to tie up somebody's legs or whatever, or to tie them up as you fire it, and then have it explode. That seems like a bit <laughs> That That seems excessive. It seems almost cruel. <laughs> but they were an effective weapon, that's for sure. They definitely were. They, they, they were my favorite of the batch. Um, I think there was also a shotgun too just a just a basic shotgun mm-hmm. i don't recall i don't think that there's a shotgun in the book i know in the movie everybody has a gun at the beginning scene when they're loading the uh, that crate it seems like there was a a crowd of people all armed with weapons so there must have been a shotgun in there and i think well, muldoon well, has one too right he's putting yeah, he, he has like a spaz 12 or something yeah he, you know guns better than I do. All I know is it boomed. <laughs> Video games have taught me all I need to know about guns. I oh. I, I hate guns, but I can I can name some. Right on. So <clears throat> those are a lot of things that were important uh, with uh, with the novel that made it into the game. Uh, in terms of connectivity with the film, uh, we have Grant's costume, of course. The Gallimimus is brought in instead of so in the novel it was hadrosaurs that are stampeding, but in of course in the movie it was the Gallimimus, and that's who. It comes to be in the video game as well. You escape by helicopter. I guess that's in the film and the novel. Uh, the Velociraptor pen. The the film made this wonderful looking... It looks like a, a hydroelectric center. But it's a, the Velociraptor pen is this you know standalone building. It's very uh, formidable looking. It's a fortress. Um, that's not quite what's described in the novel. The novel is just like a fenced off area. It's like literally a pig pen, but with like taller fences that are electrified. But uh, the raptor yeah. pen is heavy duty, and that's what we get in, in in the game, which is fun to explore. Yeah, although in the game you actually go into like even the sub basement of it, you go you go into it, and there's like a there's, I think it's supposed to be an observation area, but since they couldn't do like transparent windows or anything like that, they're they're just like painted on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um. But, like, Jurassic World Evolution, I think, made the raptor pen just the hatchery, and they were supposed to be able to be released from the hatchery into, like, a larger, more, you know, like like the Tyrannosaurus paddock. Mm-hmm. Just, just an, uh, an electrified, fenced-in ter- uh, area, but they found that the Velociraptors were too volatile, too smart to release into one of those pens. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of that is headcanon, though. <laughs> well, the raptors are so different from the movie and the novel that it's really easy to get them confused with things going on. Um, in the book, obviously, there's like almost 40 raptors, but eight of them have been sequestered for being man killers. And so those are the ones that I guess they knowingly have bred and have contained into the raptor pen in the novel. So there's eight of them, and then it turns out that the power had been off for like five hours, and they, of course, are no longer in the pen, and uh, and they cause trouble for the last, I don't know, 100 pages of the novel, which is fun. In the movie, there's like three raptors, which blew me away. All my life growing up, I thought there was just lots of raptors, but there's only three in the movie, which is crazy. Do they actually say there's only three, or do they only show three? A bit of both. Um, 
At one point, there's a line of dialogue where Muldoon says, when we introduced the big one, uh, she killed all but two of the others. So the dialogue oh. corroborates that there is the big one and two others. And then you only see three in the in the film. But it felt like there were, there were raptors everywhere. <laughs> it felt like there were yeah, lots of raptors. They, they drop in the cow and it gets... Um... It gets torn apart, and they just bring up the harness. So it, it felt like there's more than three to me as well. But uh, so that's uh, that was looking more closely at things. You you, you find things that some you like and some you don't, and uh, that was one that just surprised me. I don't know if I like it or not, but yeah, three raptors. But in the in the novel, there's eight, and um, and and then of course there's many many more. But it's kind of d- described specifically that these eight have learned that people are easy to kill, that, that this is an acquired trait, that uh, lions we and tigers... Sure yeah, and so lions and tigers will learn, they leave people alone until they discover, oh, geez, these things are like eating popcorn. And then they uh, and then they become very dangerous to people because they find them easy prey. And that's what predators like. And so these raptors are, are, are teased and acknowledged to be specifically man-killers. And, uh, and that's what makes them especially dangerous. Otherwise, uh, when they see raptors throughout the rest of the novel, chiefly at the end, when they go into that and strange raptors nest uh the raptors either don't notice them don't care they're there or disregard them which is convenient because if they were also man killers like the the eight that are described earlier uh it would be insane to go into this thing <laughs> this raptor nest but yeah anyway, yeah so the raptor nest is a little bit different um other than that i i like the the, the fun balance of, of what was in the game what was in the how it matches nicely with what was in the novel what was in the film it's a, a neat conglomeration of all these neat ideas it's fun to explore the world it's a neat spot to be the the atmosphere is really great uh, there's lots of dinosaurs in it um it was fun to play if if not cumbersome when you're on mission to to, to get all of the detail it's it's a little a little bit much <laughs> yeah well i mean i i think the team had a good time with it just from just from the small touches that they put in, you can see that there was some love that went into the final product. Like, you know, the, the computer screens, when you went up to them, uh, it would actually zoom in on the screen and you'd have a hand that would go across. And I'm, I'm gesturing here, but you, you can't see that. <laughs> but you, you would press the buttons to, to key things in. Um, but it buried in all the computers. There was There was just like this fractal creation thing you could choose the fractals that were going on in the background and mm-hmm. that was that was an interesting touch like somebody obviously was having fun with programming and they're just like how can i incorporate this into the game yeah so rather than just being like a licensed cash grab it seems like some people on the team actually had some love for the product mm-hmm. i know that there's a kind of an explanation in the manual that describes what chaos theory is kind of and it's not a verbatim recollection from the novel, certainly not from the film. So somebody took the time to to wrap their head around it and and put it in there. And so the fractals are in there, but they're not in the movie. Uh, a lot of the explanation on how the everything is put together, scientifically speaking, is really, really quickly summarized with Mr. DNA in the film. And Mr. DNA yeah. appears also in the game when you, uh, I guess, when you leave the control if you're away from keyboard for long enough uh mr dna pops up and tells you little details about the dinosaurs and things like that so he shows up too so another uh a neat connection of the the fractals that are in the in the different chapters of the the novel but also mr dna um from the movie yeah it was it was an interesting touch and like yeah somebody obviously really loved 
mm-hmm. the, the, the subject matter in order to put these things in because th- these things take a lot of work. Uh, they're not just they're not just throwaway things that they they add in because they can. So it, it was it, it, it's nice to to play a licensed game, and even though it didn't turn out perfectly, you can tell that that there were some people on the team that were passionate about the product. Mm-hmm. I think that is probably the best takeaway that we can make is that you're right. It wasn't just somebody grinding away doing their job. Like somebody cared a lot about uh, adapting a lot of really interesting details. Uh, both from the book and the movie, and putting them together in a, in a cohesive format that was enjoyable, that was immersive, but was also challenging. I mean, it, it did all these different things. And you're right, that only happens when somebody really cares about what they're doing. Uh, we didn't just. Exactly. Have you ever played Chuck Rock? Chuck Rock, yeah. Um, so I, I have. Uh, there's a game where nobody game cared game. what they were doing, and <laughs> that game was no fun. It didn't make any sense. Yeah. But this game is a lot of fun. It makes a ton of sense interesting comparison in, di- in terms of dinosaur properties <laughs> yeah i mean they uh they, they didn't really stick very hard to the plot because they you know i i can't imagine playing a game where alan grant is is babysitting the two kids throughout the entire thing but, mm-hmm. but they, they definitely worked with what they could and they, they they obviously had a lot of passion for it for sure Turns of the dinosaurs, I guess this is their, some of the, the final notes I've got here. We got the the compies are one of the characters that come and get you. They are called compies in the book. They're called compies in the second movie. They aren't in the first movie. And they're called compies here in the game, although they refer to a species called Procompsignathus. And we find out in the second film that they are not considered Procompsignathus in the second film. They're Compsignathus in the second film, which is interesting. Uh, and, of course, they have a venomous weakening bite in the game and in the novel. So that is good in terms of consistency with uh, with the Jurassic World overlord. Uh, we get Pachycephalosaurs, which are the head butters. They don't show up too much in the game, do they? I'm trying to remember even, like, when you, they must be in a very small section of the park. They're in a few sections. I feel like they're in the mountains. Uh, I just mostly remember that when you when you actually kill them, they kind of just <laughs> fell onto their side with this audible thump. <laughs> So they're referred to as the headbutters. They are in the second novel, uh, but they're not in the first. And they are not on InGen's list, if that makes any difference. Um, but And they are in the second film, I think. Yeah, but I don't think we see them again. I don't think we see these Pachycephalosaurus again. I'm not sure. Uh, of course, we get Gallimimus that run around in the field. You can be stampeded by them in the game, which is kind of fun. Uh, Gallimimus are not in the novel, but they are, of course, in the film. And uh, they, they run into you if you don't watch out, which is kind of fun. The, the headbutters. Yes. I'm not going to pronounce the name. Yes. Uh, I believe they had a toy of those in the first run of Kenner Toys. Oh, I'll that might you. be where they came from and why they're in the game. That would make sense. Yeah, that'd be a fun toy to play with. But you they you press the button and they, their head moved or something? That'd be fun. I, I I feel like they had like a spring loaded head, but I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly. Cool. Uh, Velociraptors, of course, in all of the different uh, it's in everything because uh, Velociraptor was the star of Jurassic Park. And that's consistent with the game. They're uh, they're everywhere in the park, which is kind of fun. They're everywhere. <laughs> uh, the spitter, the Dilophosaurus, it has the neck frill, just like in the in the film. Uh, and ever since, for no reason, everybody adds this neck frill to the Dilophosaurus now. And it spits, and that's consistent with the film and the novel. The novel, they did not have a frill, which is kind of neat. I remember specifically when you're going through the buildings and the Dilophosaurus there that they turn their head like a curious puppy before they spit at you. Do you remember this? 
I don't. I remember them not having a whole lot of animation to them. Yeah. Remember, they would just kind of look at you with their head askew. Like, huh, look at that. What are you up to oh, here? Oh, yeah, they did do that. Yeah. <laughs> they, they just tilted to the side. Yeah. And then uh, the Tyrannosaur was, of course, unstoppable in the game and could only be slowed by tranquilizers, which is consistent with the novel. The only thing that stops it in the book is they shoot it with a uh, huge canister. I think they call it like a gallon of of, uh, of uh, the tranquilizer dose. I think they call it Moro. I don't know. They give a different number. They, sh- they fire like a whole jug of this <laughs> solution into it uh, twice. I think they hit it twice. When I was doing the math on like the distance that the, the Muldoon is away from the Tyrannosaur when he shoots it, he's like two body lengths of the Tyrannosaur away, which is close. <laughs> and uh, he's worried about hitting this thing or not with a, like a, a bottle the size of a, a jug of milk. So, yeah, firing a big gulp at him. Yeah. And he had to use a rocket launcher. He must have had a custom weapon to, to fire something that big. I can't imagine you'd need that for any other anything else. But anyhow, yeah, that was the only way they could stop the Tyrannosaur. And even then, I think it uh, it takes 30, 30, 30 minutes or so for it to, to become tranquilized after that. But then uh, that stops them, and, and they don't have to worry about Tyrannosaurus anymore. <laughs> but it, it was written to be immune to all other weaponry, which is kind of cool. It's sort of like Godzilla. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the Tyrannosaurus only came up in like a couple of spots in the game. Yeah. Though, uh, and... If you knew to avoid those spots, you were good. There must have been an egg that you had to be baited into where they were to go pick something up, a retrievable, and then as you were getting that, it would lunge out at you and then chase you for some distance. That must have been the only reason yeah. you would be there. But yeah, you're right. It was like in extreme corners of the park. And then I think didn't it just like walk backwards. It like moonwalked back after you got away from it. Yeah, it would, it would charge at you. Uh, it would not turn. So if you just got out of it, it's... You know, from in front of it, mm-hmm. it couldn't get you. But it's still, if you weren't expecting it to be there, it was an instant kill, yeah. which is never fun. Mm-hmm. And you're right. If you got instant killed too many times, I think you could continue. I'm not sure if there were limited continues or not. But if you did continue, you would lose your score. Now, I don't recall score being important in any way. No, there's. I mean, back in those days, like... They were still holding scores over from the arcade days. <laughs> I guess so. But battery backups in video games were so uncommon that most games wouldn't record your score for any length of time. The moment you turn the game off, mm-hmm. your score was gone. So, yeah, it, it would score you, but it it was it was pointless unless you wrote that score down for yourself. Mm-hmm. I want to say if you finish the game that you would you could enter your name and and your score would be there. But again, that's I mean, unless you have all your friends come over to check out your game, they're never going to know. Like it's only for you to know. <laughs> I suppose yeah, you could compete again, against if, yourself, if, but if you turn the game off, it it wouldn't it wouldn't keep the score because the the battery back oh, really? for saving information on a cartridge was generally more it made things more expensive, so yes. a lot of companies wouldn't Yes. Wouldn't include it unless it, they had a save function and Jurassic Park didn't. So to compare scores, you would have to finish the game for the four or five hours it takes, get the score, have your pal come and also play the game before you turned it off to complete it and then compare scores. That would be the only way yeah. to compare scores. That's terrible. So we're, we're <laughs> it down, but then that defeats the purpose of having a high scoreboard. Yes, it does. 
I guess you would write it down and you could show uh, show the page to your friends. That, uh, you're right. You couldn't prove it to them. It's not like we... I guess you could take a photo of it back then. <laughs> okay. But now, now imagine back in the 90s, you had a CRT TV. Yeah. And you had a analog camera. So you would um, take a picture of a screen. You would not know if the, <laughs> if the screen captured properly because you might have got it with a scan line right across your score. Was it in focus? Yeah. It was, and then you'd have to take it to a photo place to be developed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you would find out if your score was actually captured on the film. So yeah, not, yeah. not the most ideal way of having your score. Or, had to go down uh, to the mall and find the Blacks uh, photography and uh, hand in your film. Yeah, the, the 90s were a terrible time. <laughs> they were fun to grow up in, but um, it's nice that we grew out of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I love the 90s, but like you look back and you're like, I, I can't believe I put up with those kinds of inconveniences. Yeah. I'm glad we went to the next level. Yeah, we, uh... yeah now I can just pull out my phone and take a photo of the screen and, 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 and it'll be perfect every time because I've got a preview on the camera. I'm surprised we haven't found that that game is now available just on your phone. Yeah, I mean, it can't be too big to just have as a, a downloadable. I think... I think there's a bunch of old games you can just get on your phone anymore. Well, you could you could download an emulator in ROM. That's a that's a questionable legal area, of course. But I I don't think anybody's going to come kicking down your door if you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time, that games that were based on movies don't get re-released. It's because it the publisher would have to renew the license. Mm. Um, okay. Like yeah, yeah. The 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 person who owns the data to the game no longer has the license so they can't publish it again Mm -hmm. and for a game like jurassic park uh the sales would be limited on it yeah it's not really considered like one of those classic games where if you if you release it everybody who played it back in the day will have to have it again so a a publisher would have to really do it out of a labor of love Mm -hmm. to release it which it, it has happened for like the ninja turtles games where yeah. they got a collection of those, uh, and they're all licensed games. But for Jurassic Park, it's you're, you're probably not going to make your money back on the license. No. Well, speaking of uh, what uh, Ocean Software does with their Jurassic Park license while they had it, they did release a second game, which I'd never even heard of. The, the Chaos Continues. Yeah. yeah, and I watched like a run through of it on um, on uh, on YouTube, and it was more akin to what you would get out of the Sega Genesis uh, gameplay, just side scrolling, running around. It didn't yeah, look it was, great it, to me. <laughs> it, it was a side scroller, and um, I, I own it, but I, I have not. It doesn't have the hook of of being like of having a first person shooter section. It, mm-hmm. it, it's very more what you'd expect from a movie licensed game. It doesn't have any sort of spark of of creativity, or passion, or innovation to it. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember loving this game. I remember playing it for hours and hours. I remember finishing it a couple times, maybe two times, but um, spend lots and lots of time worrying about the maps, worrying about what was on the boat. I remember all the different little corners and nooks and crannies, and and uh, using the the uh, the cattle prod to get the the gates to roll open and things like that. Just so many good memories yeah, of playing this cool. game because I spent too many hours playing this game. But isn't that the way with Jurassic Park things? You just kind of wind up. Spending hours and hours thinking about them all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I can relate to that. 
Uh, there was one other secret to Jurassic Park. There were letters scattered around the park. Okay. Yes, I remember. Collected all these letters, and they would spell something, and then you would send them in for a contest. Really? So while the contest is obviously long over, those letters are still there, just as a mystery to anybody who plays the game now. Okay. And do you do you know anything else about it? No, I I <laughs> that's all from memory. I'd have to look up what they what the contest actually was what you could have won interesting um, i remember them i thought they were like map markers like one was an e and so i was wondering if that was like this stands for east or, or something like that um i wonder what they could have possibly been yeah that, that was apparently a contest and i can't remember if you had to take a photo of them or you just had to collect them and figure out what they spelled i wonder all kinds of good ideas back then well let's uh the one part of your review that I think we need to to um, take umbrage with, we need to discuss it in in final detail before we can uh, part ways. You mentioned that your mom doesn't like Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Okay. I, so I'm like, shocked by this as well. Do we need an intervention, or how does <laughs> what happens here? Um, she thinks he's weird. Well, true. It's like, well, yes, he is weird. That's the point. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing you like about him. Yeah, I, I don't understand it. My, it. It came up while we were at home, while my husband and I were at home visiting them. And and both my husband and I just kind of looked at her askance, like, how could you possibly not love Jeff Goldblum? That's so bizarre. He is like the living embodiment, or at least the the, uh, the performance of, of um, the concept of jazz, where you've got an idea of what's going to happen, but you kind of make it up as you go, with a couple like bops in the middle, just because you can, yes. and he does I've that. Describe that way, but yes, you are absolutely correct. He dresses he, like jazz. Like I don't know, I was gonna do all the buttons up, but uh, we're playing as we go. <laughs> no, I, I, he is just, um, he is a bizarre specimen, and I think we should all, uh, we should all strive to be more like him. And what's wonderful about what he does with it is he does it for um, the enjoyment of all. Whereas I think if you get sometimes like your Christopher Watkins that do the quirk, but they try to do it dramatically and sometimes it doesn't translate effectively. But Goldblum seems to <laughs> play this quirk just so that everyone can enjoy it and, and hopefully we do. It's a shame well, if you can't enjoy it. That What's that? I, I think He seems to enjoy it too. I, I think that's yeah. what I love both about him is he just seems to... To, to love what he does. Mm -hmm. Well, he was never better than uh, than in Jurassic Park, in my opinion. Although he's been very good in a lot I, of things. I, I can agree with that too. Yeah, I mean, Independence Day, meh. Earth Girls are easy. The Fly, I mean, very good. <laughs> uh, Thor Ragnarok, very good. Uh, yeah. But perhaps never better than as Ian Malcolm. We we got him in uh, Jurassic World Evolution. Mm -hmm. the, video, the video game that he, he was in evolution too as well and he was the only returning actor who seemed to care to be there yeah he's what's the word coy aloof he seems to just have aloof. a joy in doing the work as opposed to the the um he brings himself into the work as a, and i think uh, i've heard this put a couple different ways william shatner said of um of um patrick stewart that he brings uh, Patrick Stewart brought a gravitas to the role into a perhaps uh, shaky premise, 
but his presentation and his delivery made it uh, wonderful. And so Shatner's like, geez, I should have done that more <laughs> with, when I played <laughs> Captain Kirk. I should have had, you know, a little, given it a little bit more respect instead of playing it a little bit silly because it would have, because you can do that. You can give it more respect. And I think Goldblum um, gives each of his opportunities um, full measure. In in, yeah. in that consistent measure, whether it's a great measure or a weak measure, I don't know, but it's always consistent. And I don't think he, he doesn't appear to say no. He seems to be just delighted in being a part of things. And uh, there's something respect about that. Yeah, doesn't take himself too seriously. <laughs> Thank goodness. Can you imagine a very serious Jeff Goldblum just <laughs> changing gears in his twilight? <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly becoming very, very model. Then we can't enjoy any of these products anymore. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for, for joining in. I hope you had fun on the show. Was there anything that we didn't get to about the game that you were like, boy, I got to get uh, this off my chest? Uh, no, I think I covered everything, including the obscure little contest that the button made. Yeah, wow. Well, you, thank you so much. I've been dying to include this uh, this element of my fandom with Jurassic Park into the show. And uh, I'm glad I had somebody that was so proficient in, in uh, discussing it <laughs> to, to help me bring more light to it. Because what I would have been doing is just gushing over it and... Uh, you certainly get a, a <laughs> tremendous perspective in, in Kenner Toys. It's so interesting that that uh, is perhaps where all the character design and stuff like that came from. Very interesting. Yeah. That was a, a neat little corner of the library. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for, for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. A big thank you to Edzukin, better known as Zoe Handley, for joining me on the show today after a little bit of a hiatus. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I looked into that strange contest that she'd mentioned, and uh, the letters that are found around the park are D-E-H-N-O-R, R, and R, which are fabled to refer to someone who helped Crichton write the novel. And if you mix those around, the answer is Dr. Horner. Dr. Jack Horner, the Mayasora guy that Dr. Grant is loosely based upon. So neat, eh? The text this week is The Road spanning from pages 220 to 227. In a synopsis, Muldoon and Gennaro speed out to retrieve the tourists in the park, but reach the grim realization that the Tyrannosaur has attacked the land cruisers, dismembering Ed Regis and mortally wounding Dr. Ian Malcolm. They must return to the visitor area immediately, or else Malcolm will surely die. But there's hope that Grant and the kids are alive and hiding in the park, where the motion sensors will surely spot them in no time characters. Robert Muldoon. Muldoon starts this chapter already in the Jeep, flying down the road on page 221. Knowing that it's been an hour since the power went out and that the cars had radios, Muldoon is seriously concerned that something has gone wrong. Chances are he believes this is an overreaction, but he can't shake the worry. Muldoon is unfazed by dismembered body parts, rushing to inspect the severed leg, unflinching as blood pours over his hand and takes charge, ordering Gennaro to step out of the light so he can further inspect the evidence on page 222. Muldoon is empathetic, but direct with Gennaro. He's aware that Gennaro is having a difficult time with Regis's remains, that he's un very uncomfortable and asks, can you go on? And I think this is sincere, that Muldoon would only ask for his assistance if he were able to give it, and he knows that this is a difficult scenario. I don't think Muldoon would be a jerk about this, or manipulative. Perhaps he ins intuits that the stakes are too high to have someone he can't trust in the field with him. Muldoon will reveal he's witnessed an animal mauling before, but seems uncertain with what to do with the leg, admitting it doesn't seem right to leave it behind, as if he's unpracticed in the protocol of retrieving bodies from the field. Of course, it's not right to leave it there. Then he's switched back to being practical, finding a way to bring it along without sullying the inside of his jeep, believing that he's still got at least another four passengers to fit in this thing, 
He can't have blood and dismembered body parts bouncing around. Plus, I believe Muldoon feels it's appropriate to somehow honor his fallen colleague. Wedging the remains in place is in some way dignifying Regis with a stationary rest rather than the kinetic flopping around of a dislodged item in the trunk of the Jeep, right? We can get behind Muldoon in these moments, I think. He's dragging Gennaro into the fight, not just recruiting an ally, but building up a recruit that's going to be necessary for survival. Upon seeing the overturned land cruiser that's been destroyed by the big wrecks, Muldoon swears on 223. He spots the second land cruiser under a tree 20 feet away. He already knows what happened. The T-Rex threw the car. All the evidence points to no survivors. He looks grim. Let's get this over with, he tells Gennaro. Muldoon tells Gennaro that they're like, unlikely to find a corpse, that in animal attacks there is seldom evidence, quote, surprisingly little evidence left behind. Muldoon reveals he's experienced in his years in Africa the scenes of a half-dozen animal attacks on humans, a leopard taking a three-year-old, a buffalo in Mboseli, Mboseli? I'm not sure how to pronounce that, two lion attacks, one croc attack near Maru. Muldoon goes into detective mode and concludes that Tim survived the attack and was compelled to leave the crashed land cruiser on 225. He finds more footprints, which gives them hope that there are more survivors. From the prince, he believes that likely both kids and an adult have survived the attack, and he's ready to enter the park tonight to go find them. He shushes De Niro so he can track the mysterious wheezing sound they begin to hear, and that now that's how they find Malcolm. Turns out Muldoon doesn't even know Lex's name at this point, but if the kids went into the park, it's 20 square miles to search, whereas Malcolm needs immediate medical attention on 226. Muldoon makes the ex executive decision to save the life in his hands. You know the old adage, a bird in a hand is worth two in the bush? Well, Muldoon is practical, plus he trusts the motion sensors to find the kids far more easily than they ever will with flashlights. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro rides with Muldoon on 221, but he's uncomfortable with Muldoon's driving, hence clenching his fists. Gennaro offered to accompany Muldoon in the retrieval of the others in the park. Gennaro agrees it makes no sense that after an hour, with the radios at their disposal, that the land cruisers wouldn't have con contacted control. Something must have gone wrong. Gennaro spots something white among the ferns as they drive, and he calls for Muldoon to stop the car. He realizes that he's found a severed leg, and that stops him in his tracks, even six feet away from the body part. He recognizes the white sock and brown slip-on shoe to be the kind Ed Regis would wear. <coughs> Used to wear. Gennaro keeps his distance from the leg. He's uncomfortable with the body part. He fights off nausea. Gennaro is strongly uncomfortable, but sucks it up and is firmly committed to aiding Muldoon in any way he can, which is admirable. Rather than handling the remains and inspecting the scene, Muldoon tasks Gennaro with finding something to wrap Regis's leg in, and he finds a couple of tarps in the back of, and wraps the severed leg, disguising it as a shapeless bundle on 222. Yet the wrapped leg has surprising weight to it. Gennaro continues to be surprised and perhaps mortified by these new sensations. That Crichton is letting us, quote, feel the weight helps us to also feel Gennaro's ex experiences, further ingratiating our experience with Gennaro's, and we can share in some of that terror as we continue to be immersed in this story. Upon seeing how battered the second land cruiser under the tree is, Gennaro gives Muldoon space to inspect the car first. He's not ready to see a corpse. During Muldoon's investigation of the crashed land cruiser, Gennaro serves as a poor man's Watson to Muldoon's Sherlock Holmes. Basically, he's a sounding board as Muldoon explains what's happened. We observe some of this chapter through Gennaro's perspective as he watched the, quote, great white hunter peer at the mud, face inches from the ground on 225, because he, quote, really believed he was onto something. Though he's unimpressed, the severed leg has left him with a grim determination to, uh, to close the park and destroy it. 
It reads at this moment that Gennaro believes that Muldoon may be putting on airs for the sake of impressing him so that he may spare the island from his authority to shut the park down. Gennaro is sensitive in this moment that everyone in the park to this point hasn't been truthful with him. And recall Gennaro is the only consultant who we know is aware that, quote, too many people are dying and there have been too many accidents and is fairly confident that the lizard biting children in Costa Rica is an escaped animal from Jurassic Park. But the publicist is dead. The spin zone is temporarily closed, man. I think we're getting an authentic Muldoon, but it's very interesting to see that Crichton has written Gennaro as more savvy to the marketing and manipulation. In fact, the publicist's leg in his hands ended that fantasy. The park has to close. When Muldoon indicates a series of prints in the mud, Gennaro can't see them. He still doesn't quite believe that there are survivors out here. He's surprised and concerned that Muldoon wants to search the park in the dark to find the people on 226. And upon hearing an animalistic wheezing sound, he begins to panic. Gennaro agrees with heading back to control to save Malcolm, especially considering that the motion sensors are going to be far more useful than they will be in finding the kids in the park. Muldoon says that Gennaro is responsible for telling Hammond his grandkids are missing. Harding. Harding remains behind at the visitor center, we're told, on page 221, with Dr. Ellie Sattler, who also remains back at the visitor center. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Ian Malcolm is doing bad. Recall, he was flung like a doll by the Tyrannosaur last we saw him. Now he's on his back. His skin is a gray-white color, mouth slackly open, wheezing gasps of air. His arms and chest appear fine, but his leg is destroyed. Shortly after the injury, Malcolm had managed to put a tourniquet on his leg, slowing the bleeding. On 225, the right ankle is bent outward at an awkward angle, the trousers flattened, soaked in blood. He'd die of shock if he were left out here in the jungle much longer. The leg is pulpy flesh and dull white. Splinters of protruding bone are visible. It's a credit to Malcolm to have, quote, the presence of mind to put on a tourniquet on 226 that he didn't already bleed to death. He's hoisted from the brush and led back to the jeep. With waning consciousness and what could easily have been his dying words, he's trying to help them rescue Lex, which is tearfully heroic. Muldoon doesn't even know who Lex is. Tyrannosaurus. As indicated by the wounds on Regis's severed leg, Muldoon surmises that the Tyrannosaur twisted and ripped the leg off Regis rather than biting it. This suggests that it hasn't sliced through his body, but rather pulled and relied on its neck for the severing force to dismember its prey. And I like the interpretation of a Tyrannosaur pinning its prey with a foot and then tugging with its back and neck while holding its bite in a firm and secured grasping mouth. And this sort of is written in alignment with the mythology of the novel where tyrannosaurs and theropods have, quote, weak jaws. Dilophosaurs are said to have, have jaws too weak to kill their prey on page 142, according to the recording of Richard Kiley. And this is in alignment with what we learn later when Malcolm recalls that the tyrannosaur's bite was, quote, not half bad. And then Harding affirms that, quote, most of the big carnivores don't have strong jaws. The real power is in their neck and musculature on 243. This is ridiculous. Tyrannosaurs and, quote, big carnivores likely had incredibly strong jaws, and tyrannosaurs have been studied specifically to have a bite force of 35,000 newtons. I don't know how to quite reflect that metaphorically that relates this in common terms, but a person bites at 300 newtons. So this is more than 100 times stronger than that. As I understand it, there's almost nothing a tyrannosaur couldn't bite through if it put its mind to it. So, like the amphibian visual cortex, this weak-jawed large carnivore is a mythology to Jurassic Park's animals. And only that alone. 
Localities, the main road. I think we can assume that there is a main road, which is a singular entry into the park on 221, and that other arteries should be considered minor roads, but the main road is a predominant thoroughfare in Jurassic Park. And note, we find Regis's severed leg on this road, and that he was aiming to return to the visitor area via the main road when he was attacked by the juvenile Tyrannosaurus. So, this is either a major extension of, or remains, the main road. The site of the Tyrannosaur attack is just over a rise, and the jeep's headlights point upward before swinging down and landing on the grim scene where the Land Cruiser is overturned on 223. The Cliff Road. Now, the Cliff Road is an artery in the park, and it's still slippery with mud from the tropical storm. Thus, these aren't paved roads either. The Cliff Road, at a point, looks down over the Jungle River, though it's far enough below that it's lost in the darkness on 221. It's dark. There won't be streetlights out here. Nothing but darkness and jungle and the headlights from the jeep. From where we pick up mid-journey on the road, we're told that it's two or three miles to the land cruisers, and in those final lengths, the road curves and runs up a hill, then back down a hill, and at a base of that hill, Gennaro spots something white lying in the ferns. By virtue of finding Regis's leg on this road, indicating that this is where he was attacked by the juvenile Tyrannosaurus, and therefore the main road where the Tyrannosaur attack occurred, and, as well, therefore, that this road leads back to the visitor area, we should synonymize the cliff road with the main road, I believe. The gas-powered jeep. I don't believe the jeep has a trunk, as Gennaro opens the back door and rummages around behind the rear seat on page 222. In there, he finds a canvas bag, a toolkit, wheel rim, a cardboard box, and two tarps. In Jurassic Park, the park is said by Muldoon to be 20 square miles in size on page 227. Allusions and references. We have the Amboseli and Meru, or Amboseli and Meru uh, areas. Amboseli refers to the Amboseli National Park, formerly a game reserve in Kenya, which we've been told is where Muldoon has spent much of his life and career. The game reserve is home to the Measi, the Measi people. Forgive me for not, uh, I don't know what they're why the countries pronounce things. I'm sorry. It was declared a UNESCO site in 1991, but that's after this novel was published. So this was a game reserve prior to that during the writing of this novel or the intended reference that's being made. Wild animals live safely or are hunted in a controlled way in this park. Meru likely refers to the Meru National Park covered in, according to their website, luxuriant jungle, coursing rivers, verdant swamp, khaki grasslands, and gaunt termite cathedrals all under the sky's great blue bowl. They might be a little biased, I think. <laughs> this is to be a remote, rugged, and utterly unspoilt, as they say. Truly the African wilderness, home to zebras, elephants, reed bucks, heart to beasts, pythons, puff adders, cobras, buffaloes, and more than 427 recorded species of birds. That's what that's referring to. This is where Muldoon has seen uh, people attacked by animals. Stylistic techniques. With italics, there's the remark, through it, on page 223. This is an exasperated Gennaro who is in disbelief of a Tyrannosaurus power. There's a colon. He touched it. Colon. Still fresh. Here Muldoon touches the vomit, and the results of his inquiry are presented post-colon, as colons are commonly used for doing. So he touched it, the vomit, still fresh. Results. Ellipsis. Uh, see if there's anything in the back, will you? A tarp or newspaper ellipsis. This ellipsis suggests that they're not specifically looking for a thing, but anything that we can wrap a leg up in. Uh, what you got back there? <laughs> Quote, if there's a way to wedge it, you know, so it doesn't roll around, ellipsis, on page 222. What's being left unsaid here is that, no, you don't want a body part rolling around in the car. It's gruesome. 
This morbid agreement is understood, though remains unspoken, and we meet that understanding as readers as well. This is a great way to have the reader empathize and engage with what's occurring in the scene. Quote, yes, and there's something else, ellipsis, on page 224, that something else is a sniff from Muldoon, a sour odor in the car, Timmy's fresh vomit, another indicator that he survived the accident. The ellipsis suggests here that Muldoon has yet to identify what that odor is in this particular moment. Quote, some kind of rubber-soled shoe. Notice the distinctive tread pattern on then an ellipsis, page 225. This ellipsis is an invitation from Muldoon to Gennaro to see for himself that the evidence he's been won over by is being presented to Gennaro to also take in and take solace from. Quote, small and medium size, ellipsis, moving around in circles, overlapping, ellipsis, almost as if they're standing together, talking, ellipsis, but now here they are. They seem to be running. Ellipsis, page 226. Here we can almost sense the Muldoon is in a squat position, crab walking from print to print during these ellipses, which is neat. The pause is so he can move on to the next prints and read them. Quote, I can't find the injury. Head okay, chest, arms, ellipsis, on page 225. As Muldoon is inspecting Malcolm's body, he's scanning from point to point, but it's Gennaro who points the flashlight at Malcolm's leg, which causes Muldoon to pause. Lex, ellipsis. Went, Ellipsis. Lex. Page 226. Malcolm has ragged gasps, but he musters the energy to try and direct them to finding Lex. These ellipses are filled with gurgles and wheezing. M-dash. Quote, it looked like a piece of clothing, but there was M-dash on 221. Here, the sudden realization that Gennaro isn't looking at clothing, but rather the dismembered leg of Ed Regis, that it interrupts and shocks him. The M-dash again indicating an interruption of thought. Quote, didn't bite it, M-dash twisted and ripped it on page 222 just ripped his leg off here in dialogue the m dash is like a pause perhaps we read this as an observation that surprises or suddenly comes to him almost as a shock the subsequent sentence elaborates that he's a bit astonished at the ferocity of the tyrannosaur's attack i think here muldoon can be said to be saying this matter of factly but also with grim discovery and some surprise a tyrannosaur attack is very powerful Quote, he found a canvas bag with a toolkit, a wheel room, a cardboard box, and M-dash on page 222. This is good, like when you find exactly what you're looking for and switch from searching mode to using mode, just like that. The M-dash signals that the search is over, acting like an interruption. Quote, inexperienced people imagined horrific proof of an animal attack. M-dash, torn limbs left behind in the tent, trails of dripping blood leading away into the bush, blood-stained clothing not far from the campsite page 223. Here the M-dash serves as an informal colon, presenting a list of evidence an inexperienced person might expect. Quote, predators took children, M-dash. They preferred children, M-dash. And they left nothing behind on 223-224. Here the M-dash serves as parentheses to read the, these clauses in parallel with each other. Quote, no matter what Muldoon said, Gennaro suspected him of unwarranted enthusiasm and hopefulness and M-dash. Page 225. Here the M-dash interrupts Gennaro's mental tailspin where he's lost hope in the island. And Muldoon brings him back. M-dash. Perhaps all is not lost. There are still lives to be saved out here. Quote, these footprints. M-dash. See them coming towards us from the road? M-dash. And they're adult-sized prints on 225. Again, this is in dialogue, but it's also parentheses. As two clauses are clipped together, showing some excitement, perhaps, for Muldoon, which associates with hope. He's sort of tripping over himself as the footprints reveal that people may have survived. Listen, I think we better M-dash on 225. This is Gennaro looking to get out of here, <laughs> now that they know the Tyrannosaur is out and killing people. But Muldoon interrupts him. 
Tension. When Gennaro discovers the severed leg, Crichton employs some tension to, de to delay the realization of what they've discovered on 221. He could say that Gennaro spotted a white thing and realized it was a leg, but instead, he had some dialogue, some comprehension in Muldoon, and Gennaro lets this moment and its implications ferment a little bit before spelling it out. Delaying the conclusion and drawing out the suspense is what strengthens the tension and extensively the horror in these moments. Literary techniques. We have a metaphor. Quote, he felt grateful to think about something else for a moment. The problem of how to wrap the severed leg expanded to fill his mind, crowding out all other thoughts on 222. The mental imagery that this new task has crowded out the fear and bloody imagery that's overtaking him is captured well here. His mind being filled with a task rather than filled with fear and horror is useful, and it makes me think of how full this jeep might be if the two of them had found five survivors to cram in it for a return trip. Quote, their flashlights swung back and forth in the night. 223 suggests that the beams of light from the flashlights are swinging in the night, not necessarily the flashlights themselves. Symbolism. The watch that Timmy takes off becomes not quite a literary symbol, but an evidentiary symbol to Muldoon that Tim survived the car accident. As covered in episode 38, Tim, Crichton cohesively and naturally stitched together a believable series of events that led to Tim leaving the watch behind, like a breadcrumb for Muldoon to find later. This perhaps is a symbol of hope for Muldoon and Gennaro that everyone has survived and they may be seen again. Perhaps a symbol of Tim's resilience, or of survival. Cliffhanger. Ending the arrival to the Tyrannosaur paddock, Muldoon peers into the crumpled Land Cruiser in a surprise, saying, quote, I'll be damned. And then the scene ends. Dynamite cliffhanger on 224. The next scene, nay, the next paragraph picks up right where we left off, but there's a little pause and it relieves all that pressure and tension in a meaningful way. This is really done well. It creates a literary capsule in which Gennaro and Muldoon experience escalating moments of dread and horror right up to this point, and then the mood entirely changes. And so I like that Crichton takes this moment to pause and break so we can maneuver into that second half of this chapter, which contains actual hope for a change of pace. This little segment that Muldoon is tracking the footprints and piecing the attack together culminates in another cliffhanger, the mysterious wheezing hidden in the foliage. And it's Malcolm on 225. Finding Malcolm is a game changer. His injuries make it imperative that they return immediately to save his life. But this section ends with a cliffhanger as well, as Gennaro asks if Muldoon will be telling Hammond that the grandkids are missing, to which Muldoon says, no, you are. Here, we've been facing down one kind of danger, calling upon a certain type of courage. And when they get back... They'll need to summon a whole new courage to face Hammond with such grim news. All right, a couple different discussion items here. We have contrivances and plot. I'm not sure if this is a problem or not, but Muldoon diagnoses the footprints in the mud as being from, quote, adult-sized prints and coming from, quote, some kind of rubber sole shoe with a, quote, distinctive pattern. And I think this means that it's like, you know, like Reeboks or Nikes have all those fun lines and patterns and swerves in the tread. This is apparently what he's finding in this track. This isn't specifically absolutely confirmed, but this print with the rubber sole pattern is very likely also the adult size print. So we're to read this as Alan Grant's shoe, but we're told later on that Grant is wearing cowboy boots on page 376. Now, when Grant is in his cowboy boots, this is after they've stopped the raptors, returned power, radioed the boat, and are now about to climb into the raptor nest near the very end. This is likely after Grant has tidied himself up a bit. In this moment that he's wearing boots, he's described as looking very cool in a Hawaiian shirt and jeans, as well as in these cowboy boots. So perhaps these cowboy boots aren't what he was wearing on the tour, but is what he's wearing after his horrible night out in the park. But that also means he's brought, apparently, two pairs of footwear, and one of them was a pair of sneakers. Is this an important detail? 
Well, who am I to judge? I thought he'd be wearing cowboy boots through the whole adventure, but according to this, maybe not. <laughs> That's really pedantic on me. Park management. I'm not sure how this tallies up. Gennaro and Muldoon ride in a gas-powered jeep out to where the two land cruisers have stopped, believing that they're going to pick up Dr. Grant, Dr. Malcolm, Ed Regis, Lex, Murphy, and Tim Murphy. The gas-powered jeep possibly will have five seats, likely only four. So, at its highest limit, five-seater jeep aiming to collect five people from the land cruisers opts to take a second passenger out to pick them up. This therefore must be believed to have always meant to be a two-person trip. They wouldn't have been able to fit seven people into the gas-powered jeep. I don't think, I guess, well, maybe where there's a will, there's a way, but like I've ridden in an Uber with someone laying on the floor. It's not impossible. I don't know if you subject the owner's grandkids to that sort of supplication, though. Uh, so the mission was always intended to either be two trips or expected to be very cramped on the way back. So here are some similarities between and differences between the film and the novel of this moment. So some things that are in common, uh, where is the car is wondered in both the film and the novel. They come across the remains of someone who's been eaten by a Tyrannosaurus. They find Malcolm groaning in the brush, and he has applied a tourniquet. They consider whether they should risk moving Malcolm, given his injuries. And then there are lots of differences. In this film, a severed leg isn't as closely inspected, handled, and retrieved as is uh, in, in, the, in the book. Quote, I think this was the lawyer is all that's said about the character eaten by the Tyrannosaurus. Gennaro and Muldoon visit the site. Elias stayed behind at the visitor center in the novel, whereas in the film, uh, it's Sattler and Muldoon. Gennaro's already been eaten. The film Malcolm is sarcastic and funny when they find him. Quote, remind me to thank John for a lovely weekend, he says. And then when they ask, can we chance moving him, he responds, please, chance it. In the book, he's basically unresponsive and barely alive at all. And instead of being sarcastic, novel Malcolm is gasping out Lex's name, hoping to try and save her, which is which is really admirable. Island layout. So here we go. Here's what we've learned about the island from this chapter so far. The main road and the cliff road are, are probably the same road. The main road is the singular entry into the park. The other arteries kind of branch off of it. There are no lights out here. It's pitch black. It's slippery from the rain because there is mud from the tropical storm, so the roads are not paved. It'll be more than three miles between the entry gate to the Tyrannosaur paddock. You have to cross a cliff road to get there. And by virtue of finding Regis's leg on this road, indicating this is where he was attacked by the juvenile Tyrannosaurus, and therefore the main road where the Tyrannosaur attack occurred, we don't need to worry about that. All right, so we learned quite a bit about the island today. I like that. And before we sign off, a final thank you to Zoe Hanley for joining me. Thank you very, very much. And a shout out to your mom. <laughs> Give Jeff Goldblum another try. I recommend his cameo in the HBO movie, Run, Ronnie, Run. And I put a link in the show notes for you, ma'am. You can go look that up if you like. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you'd like to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park. You can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, you can drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, while you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the Worst of the Mall, and King Street Gamers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes, or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com, or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencamp. For me, I'm just on Twitter at Rogers Ryan 22. 
Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Also not that too. Until next time. Sacrifice to the inhuman creature. Darkness spreads across the land. A thousand years unending.